19. We're going to finish up chapter 19 today, beginning at verse 31 to the end of the chapter. John chapter 19. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came away and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Well, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God and for these words which are so rich, so powerful of the testimony of your complete control over all things and especially in the matters pertaining to our salvation. And so we pray that you will help us to see these realities as though for the first time freshly implanted into our souls for the sake of Jesus Christ, whom we love and pray in his name. Amen. Uh, many uh, years ago, I would often be asked the question, what do I do for a living? And I was a little bit reticent to say I was a minister or a pastor. And a, a bit of that was down to the fact that I, I just thought pastors were, were not very good at their jobs and they had to walk around with a sort of robe on and a, a little white thingy there. And, uh, and then they would go, well, I don't get it because you're married and you've got kids. And I'd say, well, I'm not a priest. And so I, I was very reticent to say I was a minister. Um, but now I'm, I, I just say it and see where it goes. In fact, uh, recently I gave up coaching a soccer team that Matthew used to play on. Uh, and the fellow, an East Indian fellow, um, asked me what I did for a living, and I said, oh, I'm a minister, and he says, well, you're probably the most important person I know, and I guarantee he thinks I'm some sort of political minister who travels around the world, you know, I'm the health minister or the, uh, you know, minister of finance, uh, so I'm going to actually let him believe that for a while, because, you know, if I say I'm a lowly pastor, I'll lose all of that respect, I'd just... Uh, gained from this individual. Uh, but there is a uh, sense in which there are certain contexts and times in our life where 
uh, we have to own up to who we really are. And sometimes it can be situations where we don't want to come out as Christians. We feel a little bit ashamed. Maybe there's a societal or peer pressure. And we don't really tell people, I'm a Christian, when we really should. And the time and context calls for it. What you're going to see in John's Gospel is a sort of dramatic transformation that takes place as we uh, see what happens after Jesus has died. And it uh, is not without reason that John gives us some very, uh, I think, important details now that Christ has died to show just how in control of all things God still is. So it's the day of preparation and the Jewish uh, people do not want bodies to remain on the cross, especially with the Sabbath on the Saturday uh, about to take place, which begins Friday night. So the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, there's different reasons why they would ask for the legs to be broken. Criminals could sometimes stay uh, hanging upon a cross for days. Uh, and they would fight for their lives, literally by keeping themselves up uh, with whatever strength they had left in their legs so that they would not die from asphyxiation. If their legs were broken, they would not be able to keep themselves up and they would, you know, lack breath and die. So that's one way in which it would almost be a mercy killing towards the person to keep them from suffering for too long. The other reason is that uh, if you have your legs broken, there was a Jewish idea that that was an impediment, broken legs to resurrection. So break their legs and then we don't need to worry about this Jesus who had said on the third day he will be raised from the dead. So there's all sorts going on here. And you will also notice that they did not want the body to remain on the cross for another reason. Not only the broken legs, but because back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, we are told that if a man has committed a crime that is punishable by death, and Jesus had been accused of that and sentenced to that, and when he is put to death, if you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. Why is that? You have to bury him the same day. This is in Jewish law. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Paul quotes this in Galatians chapter 3, that Christ became a curse for us. For anyone who is hanged upon a tree is under God's curse. But then we are told in Deuteronomy chapter 21, that you shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Do not leave a cursed person hanging on a tree because you don't want to defile the land. So they are very concerned on the one hand about not defiling themselves as a nation by having Jesus remain upon the tree. And John is giving you again a bit of the irony of the whole situation. Here are these individuals so concerned for ceremonial ritual purity that they cannot have a dead corpse hanging on a tree, otherwise it will defile the land. And so they take the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and they have His legs allegedly broken, which doesn't end up happening, so that they can have Him dead and remove Him from the tree. 
Now, that's a little bit of the background. So what do the soldiers do? Well, naturally, they're going to do their job, break the legs of all three convicted criminals. But something happens. They break the leg of the first and of the other. Even though the man went to be with Christ in paradise, he still had to die. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So what happened? They did not break his legs. Breaking of the legs was an act of mercy in a sense to make sure the person could not continue their life. Jesus was already dead. There was no point in breaking his legs. But there's something much more rich going on. One of the soldiers instead pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. So on the one hand, his legs are not broken, which Psalm 34 says, not one of his bones will be broken. But we're also informed the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 can only be a Passover lamb if the legs of the lamb are not broken. So to fulfill the Passover lamb motif in Scripture... And to fulfill what the psalm says about not one of his legs will be broken, Christ's legs are therefore not broken. However, on the other hand, you find in the Scriptures, there will be something that identifies God's Messiah. That is, he will be pierced. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. From Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. But also, in Isaiah's servant song, we are told he will be pierced. He was pierced for our iniquities. So here are these Roman soldiers. They're just doing their job. They see that he's dead. They decide not to break his legs. Instead, they decide to pierce him just to make absolutely sure that he is dead. And what are they doing? They are fulfilling every word that has proceeded from the mouth of God. They will look upon him whom they have pierced and not one of his bones will be broken. It's really quite remarkable. But the theological significance continues in verse 34 because he says, from out of Christ came blood and water. You remember Moses struck the rock and water came out of it? Well, here the rock, Jesus Christ has been struck and water comes out, but also blood. And this is richly symbolic of not only the blood representing the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, which takes away our sins, but also the water, which is the purifying water of the Spirit that gives us new life. That's why John, writing in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He came in order to forgive us for our sins, but also give us new life in the Spirit, hence the water and the blood. And it is interesting that when Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh, it is as though the language is speaking of God ramming a thorn through Paul's flesh. Paul so identifies with Christ in his life and in his sufferings that Paul speaks about a thorn rammed into his flesh. This is what happens to Christ. He has a spear rammed through his flesh, a thorn, so to speak, as he then in turn gives us his blood and his spirit. Now John, who was at the cross, gives eyewitness testimony. 
This is not a fable. This is not a story. This is eyewitness testimony. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. And all of the details here are meant to convey to the reader that John really saw everything that happened. Now why does he say these things? That you also may believe. John's Gospel seems to be written to people who at some point were professing faith in Jesus Christ, but seemed to be backsliding or drifting away or hiding their faith from the public sphere, which actually will explain why he continues in the vein that he does as he continues. But he's trying to get the people reading his letter to believe. Do not give up your faith. Do not make it private. Make it public. Now, he explains, as I have already earlier in verses 36 and 37, why his bones were not broken and why the spear was rammed through Christ's side. He said, these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Remember, Jesus' garments were divided, fulfilling Scripture. He thirsted on the cross, fulfilling Scripture. And here, not one of his bones will be broken. Psalm 34, verse 20, as well as Exodus 12, verse 46. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so you see how Christ's death is a constant fulfillment. All of the words of Christ on the cross were fulfillment of Scripture, and even in His death, the things that happened to Him are a fulfillment of Scripture. Everything is being fulfilled. But then something remarkable takes place. And I'll try to bring this out in detail, why this is so remarkable. You see in verse 38-42, to 42, we have the burial of Christ. And two individuals come onto the scene in a public way. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he comes and he takes away the body of our Lord. Another individual comes onto the scene, Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus by night. Why does John bring that detail out? In the case of the two individuals, he is highlighting something that seems to be formerly true of them, but now no longer true. And he comes bringing a mixture of mirror and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, a significant sum, the type of... Uh, what you would say, uh, myrrh and aloes fit for a king. So, they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb. Notice what John is doing. He's saying, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. It's all going to come together in a beautiful illustration. Because this new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they were able to lay Jesus there. So this man, Joseph of Arimathea, comes forward. And he just so happens to be wealthy in order to fulfill Isaiah 53 verse 9 
which tells us, they made his grave with the wicked, that is, Jesus died as a convicted criminal, and with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was not only wealthy, but he happened to own a new tomb in which no one had ever been buried. Of all the details going on in Joseph's life, he decided he would buy a tomb. And this happened to be one of the few tombs at that time. Tombs would be used over and over again in which no one had ever been buried. And he owned a sepulcher next to Calvary so that the body could be entombed before the Sabbath. It was close by. So you have a wealthy man. He owns a tomb. Nobody's ever been in this tomb. It is fit, therefore, for a king. And it happens to be close by. And he also happens to have Nicodemus as a friend so that Jesus could receive a burial fit for a king. One of the commentators makes this point. He says, how many rich men do you think lived in Jerusalem that had a new, unoccupied sepulcher in a garden right next to Calvary? Joseph was probably the only one in the holy city who could fulfill all of the conditions. And the point is, God controls everything that comes to pass, evenly, seemingly insignificant details. Joseph grows up, goes through his life, makes decisions here, makes decisions there, does this, does that, buys a tomb, happens to be a tomb here. But God also secretly works in his heart. And you'll remember that Joseph of Arimathea, at some point in his life, did not publicly profess his faith in Christ, just as Nicodemus came at night time, not in the day, because he was afraid of what might happen. And John tells us this. This isn't me speculating. John says in chapter 12, verse 42 and 43, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities what believed in Christ. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They did not make their faith public because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They loved the praise that came from man more than the praise that came from God. Now, Joseph was a good and righteous man. Luke tells us that in his gospel. Those are the words he uses. And as a good and righteous man, he was lacking at some point in his life courage. He was somebody who experienced a condition that many in this world, for various reasons, experience. And what is that? They struggle to make their faith public. They may talk to a minister, a pastor, and find out, oh yes, and uh, you know, my heart is with the church, and uh, say things, but... In a certain other context, they're deeply ashamed where there might be a bit of persecution, there might be some uncomfortable words said, and so on and so forth. There are many people who actually do not publicly profess their faith. There are many young people at schools, and they're afraid of what their friends will think if they publicly profess their faith. And I'm not talking about walking around saying, I'm a Christian. I'm talking even about things where, let's say you're at school and you're singing and it's, uh, well, I do feel bad for boys. One of my big problems with chapels at Christian schools is that chapels are really meant for girls because all of the songs they sing are very effeminate. 
there's very few songs where a guy thinks, I actually feel comfortable singing this song. So on the one hand, I don't blame the boys, because some of the songs are so awful, I couldn't sing them myself. But with that small excuse that you may have, professing your faith is not simply about walking around saying, I'm a Christian. It's about doing things like singing about who Christ is. It's about living in such a way where you're professing your faith by what you say or do not say. And many keep their faith hidden because they are ashamed. It's a condition that affects many. And Christ says, For whoever will be ashamed of Me, I will be ashamed of Him when I come back with My angels in glory for the final judgment. This is a human condition that affects even people who quietly profess their faith. And what is the cause of this? Well, you could say it's sin, but we all know that. The cause of it is fear. People fear man rather than God. They love the praise that comes from man rather than the praise that comes from God because they fear man and they don't fear God. But they also want to self-preserve. And so the reason they don't profess their faith is because they're preserving their dignity, so-called dignity. They're preserving their name. They're preserving their friendships, their alleged friendships. And whatever else it may be, they're preserving their job. They're preserving all sorts of things. And they're ashamed of Jesus Christ. And there's always a cost to pay for those who are ashamed because they have a divided heart, and they will always therefore have a bludgeoned conscience that what they are wanting to be, they are not because they are fearful and they are ashamed and they care more for their own reputation than for the reputation of Christ. I was at a wedding last night. And uh, one of the highlights of the night is when the bride throws the bouquet back, and all of the single ladies gather behind. And it was very interesting to me to notice a difference. You see, Sabrina has her bouquet and throws it back, and you would think, and I don't think I'm overstating this, you would think she was throwing a bomb behind her, the way some of the girls were like, I'm not touching that thing. No, I'm serious. Is it not true you had to throw it a second time? And then finally Cassandra just put her hand out and caught that baby. (laughs) You did catch it, Cassandra. Very good. So Cassandra's getting married soon. But they didn't really look like they were into it, these ladies. They almost didn't want to, you know act as though they wanted to be married. But then something different happened. You see, all of the single men were called. And they were like ravenous wolves. Yes, I still remember your face. You were trying to grab that broccoli, and his broccoli was being thrown. Maybe they, the dinner was so bad they were hungry. I don't know. But I liked it myself. And of all people, of all people, AJ catches it. We all know AJ's not getting married anytime soon. But he caught it. And then he ate the broccoli. 
But you see, there's a bit of an analogy there between the people who quietly sort of think they want to be Christians and on the one hand, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't really want to make it public. You see, the guys, as hopeless as they are, and many of them are, gave a wonderful description of what it is to be a Christian in public, saying, yes, I am a Christian. I want that broccoli. And that's the real issue. The real issue is there's nothing really more important in your life than the very fact that you are a Christian and that people know you are a Christian because Christ did not die for private Christians, but for public Christians, for people who are proud to be Christians, for people who are pleased to identify themselves with a Savior who publicly died, not privately died, who publicly went to the cross. Now, what explains all of a sudden Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea? Nicodemus comes by night. Joseph of Arimathea was a private Christian and he was fearful and didn't make his faith public, but all of a sudden now they're doing public acts. But it doesn't make any sense. Why doesn't it make any sense? Because Jesus has just died. He's obviously a failed Messiah. He obviously wasn't who He said He was. And you see, here's the the real head-scratcher. Jesus walks on water. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus performs miracles and people want to quietly be His disciples. Now Jesus dies and they want to publicly be His disciples. What has changed? What has changed is Nicodemus and Joseph have seen the Gospel before their very eyes. They have seen Christ crucified. And that is what changes people. It is the cross. It changes people. People look upon Jesus Christ publicly crucified for their sins and they say, if He has done that for me, how can I not then do my best for Him? How can I not speak about my love for Him? How can I not publicly identify with the crucified Messiah? And you see, even before He's been raised from the dead, such is the power of the cross that these men are willing to be identified with Jesus Christ even in His death well before His resurrection. And this sets off something most remarkable in the New Testament because you see after the resurrection there's an explosion of courage. But even before we see courage from these two men, why? Because once Christ has died for your sins and once He has given you eternal life, how can you not have courage to stand for His name? How can you not say, I am a Christian? How can you not publicly live and act and worship in such a way where you're proud to be identified with Christ and yet so many still want to have their broccoli and eat it? So many want to be those who think, oh, I can be a Christian, but it will be on my terms with my rules and I won't have to unnecessarily suffer because, you know, I'm so winsome and I'm so careful. And I'm so harmless when actually it seems to me that the state of the land in which we are living in today is not calling in any way, shape, or form for private Christians, 
but for public Christians and people who will say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for you and for me and for everyone else out there. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Joseph, for Nicodemus, who at one time were private, but then transformed by the power of the gospel which they saw before their very eyes became public. May we not forget who we are and that nothing is more important than that we are Christians and that the world knows we are Christians. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.